Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that loves a good smorgasbord. I'm your host, Amanda. Today's episode is the second half of my conversation with Christine, a vintage expert and entrepreneur. We'll be talking about sizing and vintage clothing, the best thing she's ever found, and we'll be pulling back the curtain on thrift stores and how they work. And let me tell you, it's pretty crazy. Before we jump into that, I wanted to give you an update on the hashtag payout movement. As a refresher and for new listeners, as the COVID outbreak led to shutdowns and millions of job losses in March, retailers and brands saw an immediate drop off in sales. It was like someone flipped a light switch. Back then I still had a job, so I saw this happen. These retailers needed to mitigate their inventory risk. Basically, They had a ton of inventory already that they weren't going to sell now that stores were closed, so they didn't need to bring in even more on top of that. So to mitigate this inventory risk, they canceled orders, they asked for discounts, or in some cases, they pushed the orders out. So they might say, hey, this was supposed to be an April delivery, let's receive it in July. And you have to remember at the beginning of the pandemic, A lot of us were under the impression that this was going to end by summer, which looking back now seems so silly. We were so naive. I don't know. I think we all kind of thought, eh, June and July will roll around. Life will go back to normal. Now it's October. You know, what a year. Anyway, so they pushed all these orders out. They canceled them. They took discounts. It was a bad situation. And they did this to almost like an epic degree with 40 billion, that's billion with a B, $40 billion worth of orders initially going unpaid. In a recent report entitled Unpaid Billions, Scott Nova, who is the executive director of the Workers' Rights Consortium, calls it the, quote, most audacious financial heist in corporate history. Don't hold back, Scott. It's important to remember that most of these orders were already cut, sewn, and possibly even shipped because we're talking about retailers canceling April, May, and June orders in March. If you have listened to some of our past episodes, you know that stuff is usually on the boat for a month or two. So we're looking at a lot of stuff that was already made. In the best case scenario, the fabric was already woven and cut, so still just so much waste. And even in situations in which retailers pushed more towards discounts rather than cancellations, that money had to be taken from somewhere. And you know what? It was taken from the workers' wages. So once again, $40 billion worth of orders were canceled. I would like to remind you also that this is not the retail cost of these orders, but the manufacturing costs. So we're looking at well more than $160 billion worth of product at retail. And as a reminder, retail is the price the customer would have paid for those items in the store if they paid full price. So tons and tons and tons of wasted product and raw materials. And more importantly, all of that work was already done and the workers weren't going to get paid. The majority of garment workers overseas do not make a living wage. At best, they make their country's minimum wage, which keeps them in poverty. And by the way, a big chunk of the workers making clothing here in the US are also not making a living wage, nor are the people who work in the warehouses, nor are the people who are working in the stores. 
Both here and abroad, wage theft is very common, along with complex systems of payments where workers are paid pennies for each piece sewn rather than an actual hourly wage. And paid overtime is super rare. I mean, even here in the United States, we've talked about how retail stores kind of survive financially by having exempt salaried workers kind of pick up all the overtime rather than the hourly workers because the company doesn't want to pay that time and a half overtime that's mandated by law. So when workers miss even one paycheck, and that's the garment workers, the retail workers here in the United States, it's a crisis. They have no savings. And in fact, they're barely able to cover food and shelter under the best circumstances. Most of the workers, both here and abroad, work under terms that are very similar to what we call gig workers, as in they don't get the benefits or security of being a full-time permanent employee. When there's work, they get to work. When there's not work, they get nothing. There's no safety net for them like unemployment insurance or workers' compensation. Just like Uber drivers, Instacart shoppers, and I mean freelance workers across all industries, I think it's important to make that connection here. We're so distanced from where and how our clothes and a lot of the other things we own are actually made. Workers, factories, this is all something so distant that it's easy to feel almost desensitized to the plight of these workers. And that's why I want to remind you that they are not dissimilar to any of the workers, including us, here in the Western world. We saw millions and millions of workers in retail, restaurants, tourism, really every industry lose their jobs and health insurance during the pandemic. We are all workers. Many of us, including myself, have lost our jobs and our sense of stability and safety this year. Garment workers overseas are in the same boat. They need and want the same things we need and want. Things are not, quote, different over there, no matter how many times you may have heard that. Humans need food, shelter, safety, happiness. All humans, regardless of where they live or what they do for a living. Retailers worried about losing profit, so they canceled orders. But garment workers lost something a lot more tangible than profits. They lost food, their homes, access to healthcare and education. It's terrifying. Here in the U.S., we saw the same thing happen. Corporations across all industries feared declining sales and profits, so they cut employees, and they cut off their healthcare during a global pandemic, all in the name of preserving profits. Furthermore, retailers are using the pandemic as an opportunity to push for even lower costs from factories and suppliers, basically saying, hey, you should feel lucky to get an order from us at all. Once again, these lower prices affect workers the most. They get their hours cut, their wages slashed, or even fired. And actually, many factories have closed, leaving their former employees with no other option for employment. And once again, these workers are not going to get unemployment. You know, they're not going to get any government assistance to help them during this. The fashion industry is always a great metaphor for every other aspect of our capitalist system. The wealth disparity is so obvious. Oxfam estimates that the average fashion CEO earns a garment worker's lifetime pay in just four days. 
four days. That's not even a full week, okay? I would also expect that the CEOs of Uber, Amazon, and Apple are mirroring this pay disparity when compared to the lowest paid workers in their supply chain. Let's think about this for a minute. Garment workers are living in poverty while making billions upon billions of dollars in profits for the industry. Did you know, I just learned this today, that 20 brands, that's two zero, 20 brands control 97% of the profits for the fashion industry. And these companies are not going to surprise you. It's Zara, Nike, H&M, Gap. The system has been working great for them so far. They exploit workers. They sell us endless mountains of stuff that won't hold up. So we'll have to buy more and more. And, you know, they face no repercussions for both the exploitation of workers and the destruction of our planet's resources. Here it is. We cannot trust the fashion industry to police itself. If their reckless disregard for the lives of their garment workers isn't enough to prove that point to you, then let's talk about something else. Factory audits. For decades, we the consumers have been okay with retailers and brands monitoring their own factories through an incredibly corrupt and ineffective series of factory audits. Ostensibly, they are randomly checking factories to ensure that workers are being treated fairly and working in safe, favorable conditions. But when you work in the industry, you know the real truth. One, these audits are few and far between. And two, they do not involve the full supply chain. So maybe the factory where the garments are actually being sewn is being audited, but certainly no one is checking the fabric mill, the button factory, and, and this is really important, any of the subcontractors that have taken on part of the work. And this subcontracting happens pretty much nonstop, especially with very large orders from very large retailers. Like if a store orders 60,000 units of a shirt, which totally happens, it's unlikely that one factory will be able to complete the order in time. So half of the sewing, a quarter of the sewing, it will be subcontracted out to another factory. And to be honest, often the retailer doesn't even know about this. So they certainly aren't auditing the subcontractors. Next, and this is also really important, the audits are rarely a surprise. Once again, the system is corrupt and inspectors will give a warning of a visit in advance. So of course, everything will be cleaned up and in perfect compliance when the auditor arrives. Because in most cases, these auditors live locally. And so they know the factory owners, the factory managers. It's in their best interest to give them a little heads up. Furthermore, most smaller retailers and brands don't have the means to audit factories. So they just kind of assume that if a larger retailer is working with a factory, then everything's fine. I mean, I've worked places where we've kind of operated off of that assumption. And that's hilarious when you realize that the larger retailer probably isn't even doing that many audits in the first place. And one more thing I would just like to call out, is it really in these retailers' best interests to audit these factories, knowing that any changes that will have to be made will likely drive up costs? Probably not. How can you expect the person who basically owns the sweatshop, i.e. the retailer, 
to really care about auditing the same sweatshop. Just think about that. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Get your clothes horse bingo card out. There are only two things that make a retailer change their behaviors. One is the law and the other is the fear of losing sales. So let's start with laws. It's gotta happen. We need to get nations and states on board. There's been some success in France via the duty of vigilance law and California will hopefully pass a law to protect its garment workers soon. And there are more and more organizations and educational groups around the world fighting to change global laws to protect garment workers. So for example, there's the International Lawyers Assisting Workers Network, otherwise known as the ILAW Network. It's a network of 400 lawyers in 58 countries that promote better supply chain regulation. And then of course there's Pay Up Fashion, which is a new initiative that grew from the original hashtag pay up campaign. This utilizes us, the public, to generate more pressure on retailers from the consumer side. And of course, as we've talked about in the past, there's also the clean clothes campaign. So we have organizations that are fighting to force governments to provide a financial safety net for workers during the pandemic. But that's just the beginning because so many other things need to change from paying the workers a living wage to finally ending forced labor to preventing wage theft and sexual abuses in factories. I mean, there's just so much. Hey, how about we give all the workers, you know, a nice clean bathroom to use and bathroom breaks on the clock. I mean, there you go. There's another thing that a lot of these workers aren't getting. I'll include links to these groups in the show notes. So you can join their efforts too, because we need to be an integral part of it to make it happen. So that's the law aspect. But next, this is the other half of it. We have to stop giving our money to assholes. As of now, more than $15 billion of these cancel orders have been paid thanks to pressure from the public and these organizations advocating on behalf of the workers. So these brands that have finally paid up include Gap, Levi Strauss, Nike, H&M, Zara, PVH, and VF Corp, which I believe owns Lee and Wrangler, among other brands. Workers are still owed billions of dollars. Retailers like TJ Maxx, Kohl's, and Ross, they still refuse to pay, among other brands. I'm going to be honest, there are some that I'm not allowed to list for legal reasons, so I'll share a link to the full list in the show notes so you can see for yourself. Why do I want you to see this list? Because you should not give these brands another dime of your money until they pay up. And to be honest, if they aren't paying workers now, there's a good chance that they're engaging in all kinds of other shady behaviors because this kind of thing doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's usually accompanied by other bad things too. Furthermore, if you recall from previous episodes, a big part of sustainability is lifting people out of poverty. So no brand that isn't paying its workers can call itself sustainable. And any, quote, sustainability messaging that they put out there is just greenwashing. Once again, we are all workers. So let's support the other workers of the world in the same way that we would want them to advocate for us if the roles were reversed. All right, I'll stop lecturing you. Let's get into the conversation with Christine. Okay, so 
what about sizing? Because I do think this is something, I mean, you and I had brought it up to you, like, why are all vintage clothes so small? And you were like, well, actually, you're wrong. (laughs) So why (laughs) why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, so... Um, well, first I want to, uh, tell everyone to check out an Instagram account called historical fat people, Okay, because it is a wonderful reminder that there have been people of all sizes throughout time. Right. This is not like, like everyone wants to say like, oh, they didn't eat then or, oh, the nutrition wasn't great, which is valid. However, you know, there have been women that had eight children and like showed it in their hips. So like you know, people throughout time have existed as bigger humans. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I find to be the most uh, telling thing is that the clothes of bigger sizes were just worn longer and maybe didn't make it through time. So you're going to come across like a size 22 to 24 inch waist 50s prom dress because it was only worn once. Right, right. And by a very young girl who grew out of it Mm -hmm. and then sealed it away. So that's why those are always going to be in like pristine condition and hardly anyone can wear them now. Um, Wedding dresses are also notoriously tiny, but also what age were people when they were getting married? Oh, yeah, totally. They were like barely through puberty. You know, those size five shoes was because somebody grew out of them. And then you do find size nine, ten shoes, but they're going to be a lot more broken in and have more flaws to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I never find shoes in my size because I'm like a nine, Yeah, you know, and just like those people wore their shoes until they were gone. And you they know? were still narrow too, but yeah, yeah they, I mean like, but that's another thing too, is like when I find amazing bigger 40 shoes, it's like, what was this person's deal? Because back then they also only had like, what, three pairs of shoes? I know. Good point. They didn't have a closet full like we do. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really valid point. Well, and people just in general had a lot less clothes back then. Exactly. Yeah. And and a lot of times too, when I find those old, old dresses, man, you wash them and like, they have not been cleaned in so long that you put them in that bathtub and like, you just see the smoke cloud out of them from all the cigarettes and oh my sweat. God. Well, they like and change it's just color. Amazing. They literally oh, yeah. change color for the better, but you know. Well, yeah. Well, sometimes it's also the dyes just weren't stable. Yeah. But yeah, that's true. It's always a gamble when you wash. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. I don't really buy a lot of polyester clothes anymore at the thrift store because I'm just like, you know what? I don't like it. Unless it's yeah. like a really amazing print, it's going to make me feel gross. But when you would buy like polyester clothes and soak them, that was crazy. Yeah. That really holds on to everything. Yeah. It would be crazy. The smoke that came out of it. For sure. (laughs) Pretty wild. Yeah. Same thing with any garment, like some of the like forties or through sixties dresses, you just like, you just, man, you got to give them a couple of rinses in the tub to really like watch it bloom off the clothing. It's fascinating and disgusting all at the same time. (laughs) So one thing you mentioned to me is that you've, and I'm already, I was like upset when you mentioned this, you've heard sellers say like, oh, bigger size vintage clothes don't sell for me, which I call bullshit on. I know you do too. Yeah. Yeah. If you build it, they will come. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole store in Portland. Well, I don't know if it's there now because fancy. Yeah. Fat fancy. And it's like a store that specializes in larger size vintage clothes and it's a big store. Yeah. Like they have it. 
yeah, I, it's a it's a common refrain. Like people just don't even like well, like if I'm out picking with other people, they'll just if it's over like a, over a size thirty four, maybe thirty six in Levi's, they'll just toss it back and like it's uh, not worth it. That trouble. is so crazy. And I get it. Like sometimes they don't have the hanger appeal, and you know sometimes you've got a lot more of a customer base that is teenage and not like. But I, I have to say, working in multiple stores, it's been heartbreaking to watch customers come in and just sit down in a corner while their friend shops because they're just uh. so so depressed about even going in a store sometimes because they're just so used to not having options. And it's really hard. And And I mean, I will say that I find plus size pieces to an extent, but it also is going to vary based on body type, you know, and like, just cause I find one thing with a larger waist doesn't mean it's broad enough in the shoulders for somebody or that, it, right. you know, is going to fit their torso. Right. So fit is always difficult, even if you have the sizes. Yeah. And I'm not a tiny person and I struggle, but I also like go more gender neutral sometimes because I find men's clothes can fit my hips or whatever better than some women's clothes or what they stock in women's clothes. Well, another thing I've noticed is that the the kind of more premium vintage stores only have tiny clothes. Yeah. It, that, that, that's where it becomes pretty classist, you know, because it's yeah. like a, well, I'm catering to my clientele and my clientele is healthy. Isn't it funny that some, like I, I was thinking about this the other day cause I was editing an episode about extended sizing. And I was thinking about how there was a time in our country where being really thin meant you were poor and it was undesirable, right? Or that you had a heroin addiction. Yeah, right. It was just not a good look. And then yeah. somewhere along the line, it was like being thin means you're rich. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, healthcare and diet trends, like, I don't know. It, yeah, it seems like fitness is definitely a status thing, you know? Yeah, for sure. So in terms of shopping for different body types, because this is something, I mean, I have big boobs. I can never find anything. I swear to God, everything has a 36-inch bust and breaks my heart constantly. Do you have advice for how to find cool vintage clothes that aren't tiny? So I I, I think one thing that I do is um, I tell people to gravitate towards certain eras. It's almost like you have to learn which era kind of suited your body type because a body type is always kind of in vogue in different eras. So if you have a large chest, like you may not do well with a really narrow cut top, which unfortunately leaves the mod look out and the mod look is so cute, but it often like kind of flattens the chest and gives you that more youthful mm -hmm. appearance, but cuts away at that bustiness. Yeah. So I think for bustiness, what you want to do is look at, I like the thirties and forties. seems like because mm -hmm. we were in a war, the men were away. And so <laughs> we could finally be ourselves. <laughs> yeah. So the designs came back to like functionality. <laughs> Imagine and that. What? <laughs> yeah. Maybe without the male gaze, you're like, oh, well, just what feels good. So the drape is always really nice, but usually accommodates chest and hips. Woo. So the hips on a 30s, 40s skirt is often going to be a lot more forgiving. 
and then like i said with the drape as well especially if you're into a skirt those areas had just lovely fabric weight and drape or like if you um are broad-shouldered i would say like 70s is your go-to uh, that raglan cut sleeve is always going to give you a lot more room for your shoulders. And I think in general, if you're larger or curvy, um, online searches, the term volup mm-hmm. has like, as in voluptuous has become the word du jour for plus Interesting. size. Okay. I like that. Yeah. I mean, I hate the term plus sizes and, you know, I just did mm-hmm. a series of episodes about extended sizing and I was like, uh, I hate that I have to keep saying plus. It, it's yeah, like I, yeah. no one's invented I, a good word for it yet. Yeah, I mean, uh, full figured. You know, I like volup is still not my favorite, but it works, especially with like kind of true vintage. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. But yeah, those episodes, man, so relatable. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's tough. It's tough. Working Wolf. in the industry, it's always been like plus and regular or plus and standard. And I, yeah. I hate the idea that if you're outside of a, say, a size 12 or 14, you're unstandard or irregular, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, you're, you're yeah, not okay. Yeah. <laughs> or being trapped between between stores, too. It's like, I, you know, in that 18 to... 16, 18, 20 range, you're like locked out of a lot of mainstream stores, but then you're also too small for extended sizes stores. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. You know, and of course also like if you are stylish, the larger size stores are really, I mean, they're just, they always seem so old to me. I, I think some of the designs have gotten better. They've gotten better. I definitely see some of that stuff here and there, but there's a long way to go for sure. Like more fun bras with like the pentagram lines or like, mm-hmm. you know, but then it still gets dated because I think it just takes so much longer to plan those I know. Out. It's not fair that like you ca- you have to wait two extra years to get a pentagram bra. You know what I mean? And then by that time, it's not cool And anymore. then they're like, oh, that is so passe. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we talked about this a little bit, but how do you determine how much you're going to charge for something? I mean, I know you have this like three times rule. Well, that's just a general rule of thumb. And like some things, you know, like I found one time a t-shirt for $12. No, I think I actually paid $8 for it, but it turned out to be worth over 400, you know? So, um, that rule doesn't always apply, but I think, I think there's always going to be research involved. Like I always look online, I look at eBay previously sold. I look at other websites like Grailed or Etsy. And I kind of I kind of price it to sell. Like typically I don't want to have it sit online forever. I'm not trying to show off right. and just have it sit there not selling for four years. Uh-huh. You know, some stores can do that. Like there's a really two fabulous t-shirt vendors online are like the Captain's Vintage and Wyco. Okay. W-Y-C-O. And they they have like pretty premier t-shirts, like things that you're like, oh my gosh, that one's incredible. But they're also priced to sit on there and just show what their amazing collection is sometimes and if they sell it cool. Anyway, so I try to go quite a bit below that, but still within reason of rarity and desirability. 
So it takes a bit of finesse. Yeah, I could, I could see that. I mean, it's complicated. If something over time isn't selling, do you sort of like take markdowns, meaning like reduce the price? Yeah. Uh, well, sometimes I'll cycle something out and I'll just put it in storage for until the next year or something. And sometimes that'll make all the difference. I'm sure. I'm sure. I do end of season clearance. And then recently with COVID, you know, because there haven't been as many sales, I'm just trying to sell through back stock at the moment, although right. not too fast because I don't necessarily know how picking is going to be over the next year or so. Yeah, good call. More common items like linen tops or silk tops or more basics, I'm letting go at pretty basic pricing. Like, actually, I had an overstock of jeans and I was just trying to let them go. So at the last Portland Flea, I was like, all right, 20 bucks a piece. I love the idea of having an overstock of jeans. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'm sure that's ghastly to some people, but like mama needed money and hey, <laughs> I was just like 20 is. bucks and Hey, they're real cotton just, you know, but also people didn't have to think about it too hard. Yeah. So yeah. it was nice to just make some money, but I kind of feel like a jerk. Cause I know other vendors were probably selling them for more, but <laughs> I don't know what's coming next. And I don't, you know, like I just need to make money right now. <laughs> right. Right. So that brings me to the next question, which is like, in your opinion, I know that right now is a super weird time. Do you yeah. think pretending that COVID doesn't exist, is it useful to have a store for vintage or do you think it's better to kind of do what you do where you're selling at events, you sell online? I mean, what do you, what do you think is the most profitable, I guess. Well, I mean, man, landlords, landlords really, really answered that one for us. You know, I feel like they were such classist pricks Uh at the break of COVID that it is almost better to have online. However, I will always say there are some real benefits to brick and mortar. And like I said, that thing earlier about like, when someone knows you have a vintage store, mm-hmm. they will bring things to you. And that's kind of, that's really valuable in and of itself. And having a permanent location is really special. But with COVID, I don't know. It's hard. And then, and then like with the problems with online selling is like, everybody wants you to be like Amazon and just bend over backwards. <laughs> uh-huh. Customers always write. You don't get any leniency in your policies. You just have to just give in no matter what. Right. That's rough. You know? So I don't know. Is that worth that or the really tenuous relationship between vendor uh, between landlords and uh, tenants right now? It's hard to say. It's hard to say. And I do know, a lot of places in Portland have been closing. Some of it, I think, might be people like trying to prove something to their landlords. If they could get out of a lease, get out of a lease. Because mm-hmm. landlords were not being very forgiving. Like That's what I was hearing. Like Specifically in Portland uh, more than anywhere else. Because I have friends in other cities whose landlords came to the table to them. Yeah. And we're like, let's work something out because it's better for you to stay here than me have to look for a new tenant. But it seemed like in Portland, they were like, where's my money? Yeah. A hundred percent because they're, they're pretty heartless investors and you know, they're like, well, I have my overhead. How am I supposed to pay that? And I'm like, you know, can we not make concessions? Because if, if you're holding me to my lease to the T and you're not giving me a break, like as soon as my lease is up, I'm out. And then good luck filling that spot at that same lease rate. 
you know, you're going to have to adjust your lease rate after that, or you're out of, you know, you're going to have to sell your building. So either you take a cut now, but we're better in the long term, or you don't take a cut, you bleed a turnip. You know, like, where (laughs) where do we go from here? Like, we're both screwed then. So good luck. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, this is the story that I keep hearing over and over again. Yeah. Like, no one's moving into your empty storefront right now. No, no. I mean, nobody's taking those games. Actually, you know, the people that are, are going to be the shittier businesses, though. They're going to be the more corporately owned ones or the ones that are franchised Mm -hmm. out or the ones that have big capital uh, investment firms behind them. And we all know those are the way more toxic businesses. So you're just squeezing out the little guys. Totally. Totally. So you mentioned how you had excess inventory in denim. What do you do with the things that don't sell? Cause it does make sense based on what you've been saying to hold on to stuff. Yeah. I mean, don't look in my garage. (laughs) Um, I, (laughs) Yeah. Storage becomes very important. Um, cause you want to like, you know, seasons change here. Portland is very known for its seasons. So at the end of a season, I'll pack it up. And if I've had it for more than, you know, two or three years, let it go. Right. Right. So, um, that's when places like red light come in, um, buy, sell trade places. That's where also other vendors come in. Like I might know somebody that has a space in a store, and they could sell it, whereas I couldn't. So I like to kind of just shuffle stuff around within the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I don't know, donation is 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 like a last resort. But at the same time, I in my mind, it's kind of like, oh, well, that fuels back into my picking or like, right. you know, but I'd rather do individual trades or deals with people. That makes sense. And so... Even at the beginning of this, I had so much backstock of like some basics that I just didn't want to look at anymore because I just, I kind of loathe basics a bit. So I was wholesaling them to a friend that had a space and was having trouble sourcing. Mm-hmm. So that was nice and easy. Yeah, that is. It's very convenient. Well, yeah, I guess, I guess, I guess that's lucky given my connections within the town and my relationships with other vendors, but you can always take them to other stores or whatever. I feel like buy, sell, trade is kind of the way to go. I mean, you have touched on a lot that like community is so important in the vintage, in the vintage game. And I've actually known that from you because you always know every single person in town who's selling. And what yeah. they're up to and what they do and where they sell and what their strategy is. And you like know their whole story. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm a gossip at heart and I just love to, <laughs> I love, I, I just, I just appreciate that. That also there's so much room for individuality and I appreciate that right. within vendors, you know, like everybody has their own style and aesthetic. And I feel like when people can remain true to that, it benefits the community as a whole. Totally. Totally. I think it's really important. So what's the best thing you've ever found? One of my personal favorites was a, um, an Aussie Clark blouse with a Celia Burtwell print. Wow. And they were a married couple. Uh And in the late sixties, they co-designed, like she would do the fabrics, the textile prints. And then he just had a way with flowy silk organza and draping and just really stunning together. 
like their work just really like popped. But it was a, a blouse that I found at an antiques expo. It did not have the label in it. But I mean, uh, I knew it was special right away, but it was $12. Oh my God. Stop. It was amazing. But like I said, it didn't have the label. So I was like, well, I don't know for sure, you know, but her print is pretty unmistakable. And then um, actually our friend Bobby posted an image. I think it was from like a Rolling Stone of a model in a couple of their garments Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, that's there, there, that's that blouse. There we go. And it was um a sheer silk organza and it had ruffled sleeves and then a billowy kind of poet sleeve. Or it had uh like a ruffle cuff, uh. billowy sleeve, and it had like a an elastic sheared waistline with a little peplum under it, but then was low cut, but still had almost like a clowny kind of ruffled collar on it Mm -hmm. but the way it draped was just so stunning and it was totally from that late 60s rock star girlfriend cool era that is is quite a score that's amazing it was so beautiful i ended up selling it to another vendor and then they sold it for more at a really prestigious show but then i saw it again later um at a secondhand store that was being offered on the app gem ah okay it was yeah back on the market again it's just interesting to watch because i mean that that garment was unmistakable and it didn't have a label, so that I mean, I don't know how you could top that. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. That was that was just uh, such a special garment. I don't know. Like, I get really attached to things. It becomes pretty hard. Like, it's you know, sometimes you're like, well, I need that money. I'm gonna sell it, and then you're like, oh, that piece, vintage will haunt you. I'm I'm sure. I mean, I am haunted by vintage things that I didn't buy. Oh yeah. It's a game. It's a gamble. Yeah. And sometimes you're like, Oh, I'll come back for it. And then it's yeah. not there and it will haunt you forever. Forever. I totally, yeah. I feel like I remotely think I like it and I can afford it. I just do it because I can't handle decades yeah. of despair. Right. <laughs> come after I mean, they really, like, yeah, I've had stuff pop up in dreams later where I'm like, dang, <laughs> I should have gotten it. <laughs> So something that you and I wanted to talk about when we were kind of planning this episode was we wanted to really talk about thrifting. Yeah. Because it's kind of weird to me because, and I know I'm preaching the choir, I have been thrifting since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. So thrifting being trendy is bonkers to me, (laughs) you know, and I get torn where I'm like, on one hand, okay, I'm glad that people are buying secondhand and not being wasteful. But then there's this evil part of me that is like get out of my thrift store yeah (laughs) you know it's really really tough I know a lot of listeners know that feeling but also like everybody please continue to buy secondhand and I'll stop being a a petty bitch about it so we right now are in what fast company has called the golden age of secondhand shopping according Mm -hmm. to ThreadUp's 2019 resale report there are more secondhand shoppers than ever before they're saying it's the millennials and the Gen Zers leading the movement. I, I'm so tired of hearing that kind of yeah. language. <laughs> well, just blame the younguns. <laughs> I know people of all ages who have been thrifting their entire lives. Right. There are a lot of places now to buy secondhand. You know, for a while it was like Etsy, eBay, 
and then IRL places like, you know, Buffalo Exchange and thrift stores. But now we have like ThreadUp and Poshmark and Depop and people selling on their Instagram feeds and Macy's is partnering with ThreadUp. I think Nordstrom might be now. And then like the gap is, and everybody's trying to get on this game of secondhand, right? Like they want resale is now where a lot of these retailers are seeing the future. Oh, hi. What's up, Brenda? Come here. Come and sit on my lap. Did you hear her? She's like talking to the mic. Mel. And so secondhand is like all these fast fashion big retailers who are like, oh, we're not making as much money off of garbage clothes anymore. Like they're trying to get into secondhand, which makes me nervous. Like this gentrification of thrifting, like making thrifting mainstream and not creepy or weird is turning into like a big old capitalist business, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, businesses are always going to want to, I mean, they were realizing they were losing a piece of their pie Yeah. to resale. And so they're just jumping in on it. Yeah. I I have that debate a lot about like quote unquote gentrification of thrifting and like what my part in that is by reselling, you know, but also even if I don't do it, other people will especially given Instagram, bringing it into popularity more and stuff. And I feel less about, I feel less icky about it, especially at the office. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, like uh, to me, that's, that's like no man's land where a lot less of the people, I mean, people that need it still go there. And also the amount of stuff that goes through there is way different than a thrift store. Oh, totally different. I mean, I do think about this a lot because when you and I were kids, like thrifting was something that people looked down on, right? Like you were poor, it was growth. And even when I was in high school and I knew thanks to all the magazines I read that thrifting was fucking cool, you know? (laughs) At my school, people thought I was like just so gross and and pitiful because I thrifted. Like my family must be poor, which in fact it was. But right. that's not why I was thrifting. I could have gotten my mom to buy me some clothes at Walmart, I'm sure. It was like, it was cooler and more interesting. And I feel like there was a stigma attached to it for a long time. And now you see articles on like mainstream websites, like Refinery29 mm-hmm. or like the Today Show. And they're like, thrifting is where it's at. Here's how to thrift successfully. And people make like YouTube videos. <laughs> Those videos. Yeah, or live oh. from the bins. I also oh, so yeah. annoying. I know, yeah. I know. I'm also like, can you not film in here? This is very like particular. So I can tell that the thrift stores are onto this because oh, I yeah. feel that prices have gone up a lot. Absolutely. Right. I mean, yeah. When I was buying for a store in particular, I would notice that things that I, if I was hunting for trends, like even certain colorways, like if I was looking for, like. I remember last year I was looking for coral, lilac, and lime a lot, and I would notice those items were priced higher. Totally. I mean, they know they know what they're doing. They know because they have the barcodes and they can see what sells day of a lot of the times. Right. And I'm sure I'm sure now with the advent of selling online, they're handed by management or whatever some higher up uh, lists for the people that price out the garments there. I'm sure they're handed out lists to tell them like what garments need to be priced higher for sure. And that brings us to the question, why would these thrift stores be trying to mark up stuff even higher when they're a thrift store, they get that stuff for free. Are they supposed to be doing good things? Well, 
No, they're for profit. Yeah, I've got I've got all kinds of tea here because you and I were talking yes. about it, and we were like, we know they're up to something sketchy. We've heard some things. Like, let's get down to it. So, I thought we'd start with Goodwill because Goodwill is the biggest. Yeah. Of all of the like thrift stores in the United States and you know right. North America in general. So, Goodwill is a nonprofit. And they allegedly, and I use allegedly because, well, you'll find out why, they use the proceeds from sales to fund job training and assistance programs. And I've always been kind of confused about this, but you'll see like posters around the store or on the door. And so you kind of know they're doing something, right? Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about what Goodwill's doing. And I'm going to refer to profit a few times, which seems weird because we're talking about Goodwill being a nonprofit. So when I talk about profit from selling things, I'm I'm referring to the money that's left over from selling free merchandise, like literally inventory that they got for free after we deduct all of the overhead costs, like the people who work at the donation drop-off center, they do the sorting, the tagging, running the stores, that kind of stuff. Because really... Goodwill's biggest expense is the people who work for them. So don't look at the notes, Christine. I'm going to ask you what percentage or fraction, if you, if you would like to go that way, what percentage of Goodwill's quote profits do you think that they are using for these causes? Hmm. I feel like to be true equitable, like I would hope it, hope it would be, you know, what, 40% or... (laughs) better, but I'm sure given some of the shady things that we know to be true, let's go with 10. Okay. Well, it's less than one eighth of Goodwill's profit from from selling stuff that they got 100% for free. So actually at 10%, you're probably right in there. Okay. But like you said, it should be way more. I mean, yeah, if you wanted to be truly equitable and live up to your claims of non-profitness, yeah. So I actually, I went down a really deep rabbit hole about Goodwill. A 2016 investigative piece for a magazine called Nonprofit Quarterly, which sounds dry, but now I'm thinking I might want to start subscribing to you. (laughs) (laughs) They found some really disturbing stuff. So they use the Freedom of Information Act to get all kinds of stuff about Goodwill from all over the country. The stuff that I found to be the most prevalently being recounted across the internet related to Goodwill of Nebraska, Goodwill Omaha, they were running job training and assistance programs that served thousands annually. You're like, okay, that's great. Nearly all of those activities have been funded by government grants and contracts. So The added layer to Goodwill is that they, not only are we donating all our stuff to them. They're getting tax money. They're getting our tax money too. Right. Right. And, and of course not paying taxes because they are a nonprofit. They're a nonprofit. Wink, wink. Yeah. So that year in 2016, Goodwill Omaha had made $4 million in profits by selling the stuff. And that was in Eastern Nebraska, Western Iowa. Even its signature program that employs disabled job trainees within its stores, it was primarily funded by school districts. So they made that $4 million in profit. Because it's education. Yeah. They didn't use any of that on their programs. In fact, 
Most store profits, so once again, we're talking about $4 million in profits here, are being consumed by administrative overhead, which includes much of the pay to its top leaders. Not unlike any other evil corporation that's out there right now, right? So just like all these other horrible corporations, there's a huge disparity in employee pay within Goodwill that actually is even more extreme than what we see in for-profit companies, right? So you kind of expect better because we're talking, once again, about a nonprofit where you and I are donating our stuff. Mm -hmm. In 2016, the same year as that nonprofit quarterly investigation, Goodwill gave out more than $57 million in bonuses to its executives. Once again, we're not spending much of anything on their alleged nonprofit mission, right? And then I've actually found some really exciting dirt about the Goodwill in Portland, In 2005, Goodwill Industries of the Columbia Willamette, which is the Mm -hmm. Goodwill of Portland, Oregon, it's actually the largest sort of district of Goodwill in the country, which doesn't surprise me. Right. Yeah. I I mean, there are other places where I grew up that did not have bins. Yeah. And then here, and they've been since 2005, have expanded their bins and opened multiple locations within the Portland area. It's true. And they even have a restaurant in one of their stores. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they came under scrutiny due to executive compensation that the Oregon Attorney General's office concluded was, quote, unreasonable. Ooh. And once again, this is one of the largest goodwill sort of districts in the country. Wow. So, okay, so here, here's where we are so far. Goodwill gets all their stuff for free. They get money from the government. They are paying out humongous bonuses to their executives, and they're not really using much of their money at all for these programs. Well, it gets worse. Goodwill has been criticized by some for using a provision of federal labor law that basically allows them to pay workers with disabilities less than the federal minimum wage. It's, it's uh, from the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. It's section 14C. And it says that organizations can obtain a special wage certificate that allows them to pay workers with disabilities a commensurate wage based on performance evaluations. Once again, this law was passed in 1938, and it's so archaic. The way we look at people who are differently Ugh. abled now is like so different than exponentially. It was in the yeah. 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 So wow. Goodwill currently employs 105,000 employees in the United States. And a little bit more than 7,000 of them are paid under the special wage certificate program. So going back to the Portland Goodwill, the Columbia Willamette, in 2011, workers with disabilities worked 159,000 hours for an average hourly wage of $5.78. Oh, What's the God. minimum wage in in Portland? Is it 15 yet? Is it 10? Uh, no, I think right now it's like, I want to say 12.75. It's working so, its way up to 15. Less Slowly. than half of the minimum wage. And the lowest paid worker in that organization received $1.40 per <gasps> hour. That's criminal. I know. 
According to Pennsylvania records from 2009, some Goodwill workers earned as little as 22, 38, or 41 cents an hour. <gasps> All of those cents, once again. That, I know. So this is terrible. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Even worse, all employees, whether they are actually making the full wage or they qualify for this reduced disability-related wage, they're subject to really strict, unrealistic performance quotas, and their wages are docked if they're not fast enough. So this would be bad enough for a fully able-bodied person, but imagine if you were blind or you had, right, or if you had mobility issues. If workers don't hang 100 items of clothing in 32 minutes, their pay gets docked. And once again, in most cases, this pay is already below the minimum wage, or at best, it's right at the minimum wage. This completely punishes people with disabilities, and it creates an easy means of leverage for the company to continue reducing the workers' pay. So I read some crazy articles, like there was one where it was actually a couple who worked for Goodwill. They were both blind. They were, I want to say that they were making two seventy-five an hour. And the woman was like, you know what? I have a college degree. There are so many other things I could be doing within this organization, but they insist on putting the people with disabilities in this floor. On the floor, right? Yes. And she's like, so I can't even see the hangers. (sighs) On most shifts, I'm being docked so much that I'm lucky if I can afford to take the bus home. I mean, like there, and there were tons of more stories like that. Mm. Like it's just so exploitive. Oh, I'm sick. That's uh, I know it's it's really upsetting. In 2019, Goodwill brought in more than six billion dollars in revenue, and I just want to underscore how they did that. Just as a reminder, by selling stuff that they got for free from us and exploiting their workers. And I want to add that they have been aggressively fighting against an increase in the minimum wage for years. They're basically, their argument is like, how can we make money if we have to pay people a living wage? Uh, Yeah, I know. I know. So that's goodwill. They're a bunch of assholes. The last time I was in one, they had changed their announcement uh, policies or whatever, and they were saying that they were now connected with job training for Amazon. Oh, God. That's disgusting. Yeah. Well, now that now that makes so much more sense, too. Yeah. Um, totally. Oh, my gosh. So, so gross that's a nonprofit thrift store. <laughs> just just to give some perspective there. But something that Christine and I both know that maybe not every listener is going to know is that some thrift stores are for profit. And I would actually say a lot of thrift stores are for profit. Mm -hmm. So here are the biggest ones that are nonprofit. We already know Goodwill, Salvation Army, Desert Industries, uh, Habitat for Humanity Restore, and St. Vincent de Paul. Uh, And I would say most of these do a much better job of giving back to the community than Mm -hmm. the Goodwill. I'll say that based on my experience and reading, like they're, they're a good place to go. And I also feel like they don't do crazy shit where they like drive up all their prices and whatnot. Something that I forgot to add with the Goodwill and is going to apply for these for-profit thrift stores that I'm about to talk about is whatever they don't sell, they ship overseas and sell there. 
because, you know, they don't want to take a hit on it, even though they're getting this stuff for free. And as we talked about in previous episodes, selling that stuff overseas is not a good thing either. Right. Right. So here are the biggest for-profit thrift store chains. There's one called Savers, sometimes called Value Village, which we're going to talk about a lot because they have gotten into so much hot water Mm -hmm. over the years. Uh, Red, White, and Blue, which we had one near Portland that benefited veterans, if I recall. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's another chain called America's Thrift Store, which I've definitely seen places, but I can't remember where. So these places, they still get donations for free from us. But you have to keep in mind that they're making a profit off of this and they're keeping it. So these for-profit thrift stores have very opaque financials, meaning it's really hard to get a grasp of what they're actually donating. But it seems like on average, they're donating about 4 to 6% of their sales to the charitable organizations they represent. So that means... For every $100 worth of stuff they sell, we're looking at 4 to $6 going back into the community for stuff they got for free. But it may be lower. So uh, we're going to talk a lot now about savers, which in some locations is also called Value Village. And to be honest, for a long time, Value Village was my favorite thrift store. Now I'm second guessing Same. that. Yeah. Yeah. So. The smallest percentage of revenue paid to charities over the last 15 years came from savers. So I'm going to give you some really gross examples here. In 2001, they they had a partnership with Big Brothers Big Sisters of the East Bay in Oakland. They were giving this organization 0.02% of the revenue, which means two cents for every $100 made. Two cents. Okay. So you sell a thousand dollars worth of donated stuff. The organization gets 20 cents. Oh, you sell $10,000 worth of stuff. Now they're getting two bucks. I mean, this is horrific. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So that's 20 cents for every thousand dollars and so on. And that same year, Another organization called Hope Rehabilitation Services in Santa Clara received, they were getting a little bit more here. They were getting 0.87% of savers revenue. So that was 87 cents for every $100 sold, which in comparison is huge. Yeah, huge. And by the way, savers calls itself the thrift superstore with a community conscience. They're giving 87 cents in a good case scenario back Uh, 87 cents of $100. Keep that in mind. Not even a full dollar dollar crazy. We're not even talking one full percentage point savers has come under legal fire. Not surprisingly for essentially being very misleading about being a charitable organization. And by the way, Savers makes more than $1 billion per year in revenue. I started to do some more deep digging into Savers specifically, and it seemed pretty confusing to me. From what I could gather, basically, they'll approach an organization and say, hey, would you like to be the beneficiary of our store sales? And the charity is probably like, oh, this is great. Yeah, this will be easier for us. Well, those charities are responsible for collecting goods for savers. 
So you right. can, yeah, you can go to the Savers store yourself and donate, but like you might also like, I don't know, I've lived some places where Savers was associated with ARC and mm-hmm. you would be better off to donate it to ARC or go to, yeah, to or go ARC. and yeah. say, listen, Savers, ARC sent me here. And mm-hmm. it's not, it's, it's like so complicated, but basically just because someone donated stuff to you and you're giving it to savers doesn't mean you're going to get the full percentage, even if it's just 1% or less of the sales from that, because they kind of, they have a lot of rules and quotas around what you can get paid for versus not. So like they have a whole list of things they won't take at all. So if someone donates a couch to savers or to ARC and ARC passes it on, ARC is not going to get any money for that because they don't pay them back on furniture. And I want to say there were other things like a lot of electronics and home goods as well. And the organizations have a quota. Basically, they have to meet a certain threshold of donated items. And it can't be these exempt donated items. So like if everybody comes and donates a couch, then ARC's not getting any money out of that donation. So... If they don't meet that threshold of minimum donations in their name, then they don't get anything. It's so complicated. So basically, when you go to one of these stores, you know, because they sell couches at Savers, they sell tons of home goods. They sell all kinds of things that they're not donating the proceeds of. So it's like shopping there may not even have a positive impact at all if that's the reason why you're thrift shopping at that store, if that makes sense. Like you're getting bamboozled into thinking like you're doing something good. You're doing it for good. And like you're probably not. And because these companies aren't publicly traded, once again, there's not a lot of transparency into their processes and their payments and their arrangements and donations and everything. So you don't really know. It's like very, it's very hidden from consumers, I would say. Right. Yeah. I'm sure. I mean, for a reason, you know, right. This is horrible. Right. And so there are a lot of these charity watchers, you know, like thrift store quarterly or whatever I was talking about earlier. (laughs) (laughs) They say that savers and stores like it because there are a lot of these like for-profit thrift stores are kind of reaping this like bonanza of money on donated goods, giving back minimally at, or maybe not at all to charities, but then they have slogans like, this is from the Value Village, donating to Value Village is a great way to donate to charity. Yeah. The other thing that was really interesting about Savers and Value Village, because apparently this company is just like rotten in every way, is that they've also been accused by the IRS and other organizations of allowing people to create their own write-off. So I don't even know if you can write off donations to thrift stores anymore because there's been so many changes in the tax law. It's like damn near impossible to write anything off right now. Right. Trump, But, you know, you get that receipt if you go to say the goodwill, not that I'm saying the goodwill is like a paragon of virtue here, but the people working there would kind of assign you a value 
Unless you went to a sketchy place. I did go to a Goodwill once where they gave me a plan. Oh, they just hand you yeah, the plan for you to fill like, out. Just, yeah. Claim whatever. Well, Savers yeah. and Value Village have been doing the same thing for a long time. You could go there and give them one couch and, you know, that couch is worth like 20 bucks and be like $1,000 couch, you yeah. know? So then they're also like kind of screwing over the tax system. It's just like right. everything they're doing is bad. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> Yeah. So then you and I were like, hey, what's the deal with ThreadUp? And I'm going to tell you, ThreadUp is keeping their information so much on lockdown that I couldn't find anything. Whoa. It's like all the internet was, was people who were clearly being paid to write really glowing blog posts. That's all I could find about ThreadUp. Right. Because most people don't get paid out well for what they sell in. So the people that are commenting on it are probably paid quite a bit more. Right. And my assumption here is that ThreadUp is probably only selling a very small percentage of what they receive. Sure. Right. Where's everything else going? Oh, they're writing it off and donating it probably to another company or selling it to the rag trade, right? Right. It seems... Like there's probably a dark underbelly there now that we know that all these other thrift stores are like total monsters as well. Yeah. <laughs> so <sighs> yeah. That's... Dark, wet. Yeah. Dark, dark, dark. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what much else to say there. If you're listening and you have worked for one of these stores, please, please reach out to me. I have so many questions. I can keep you anonymous. <laughs> It's like, and I don't want to sour anyone who's listening to this on thrifting because buying secondhand is one of the most sustainable things you can do. But I also just want to make sure that you're thrifting for the right reasons. Fully aware. Yeah. Yeah. Like, don't think that when you're thrifting, you have somehow saved the planet. I mean, even like the Goodwill, you know, will have like signs like that. Like you're doing the best thing for the whole world. You're like saving humans and the earth. And I'm like, well, to a certain extent, you are doing good things for the environment. But Goodwill also is like shredding up a ton of stuff. You told me that a lot of thrift stores have trash compactors that are for the stuff that's going to get shredded, right? Yeah. Back in the day, I used to dumpster dive behind thrift stores. And then I noticed over time, they'd start putting locks and keys on those dumpsters. And then eventually they started getting their own trash compactors. Mm -hmm. And I've also since um, really getting into selling it, gone to managers and asked like, what happens to the shredded t-shirts that are you throwing those away because people like me might want to buy them. And they were like, no, we sell those back to the rag trade. Yeah. I mean, they're making money in every single way. So, yeah, you know, the clothes yeah. that don't get sold at the store either get sold to the shredders, they get sold back to the rag trade or they go overseas. And so once again, like if these thrift stores were really about community and helping people with less have more, they wouldn't be doing that. They would be donating that stuff to people who were in need instead of looking at every single way to turn a profit on it. It makes me really mad. <laughs> yeah, it's horrible. And I was even, I mean, does so that means that even the stuff that's shredded is probably sold off as shredded mm-hmm. fiber to companies that are going to use that to stuff mattresses. Mattresses, insulation, um, Uh, a lot of the like sort of soft parts of the inside of your car, 
like the seats, the insides are filled with things like that. <laughs> Isn't that crazy to think that's about? Nuts. I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, it gets it's it's what's called downcycling, where it's like mushed up together into a less premium product, right? It's not being upcycled. It's the opposite. It's not becoming better, right. I guess, right? But uh, it's really, really common. And so basically everything you donate is turning into something unless it is like wet, moldy, poopy, bloody, something then like it, that. Then it goes then it, to the bins. Then it goes to the bins and then someone <laughs> touches it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh man, the stories. Oh yeah. Yeah. Everybody's got a finding a diaper at the bin story. Yeah. Moldy (laughs) cheese, like in a box or, oh, there's a razor blade that just cut me. I need a medic. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I feel, I feel really riled up about thrifting now for sure. I know. I'm like, I'm I'm glad that you and I talked about it and we were like, there's something sketchy going in there. And you were like, I heard sketchy things. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to find out. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Thanks for researching. I mean, like, yeah, all, I mean, any hunch that I had was blown out of the waters and now I'm just really miffed and overwhelmed. And it seems like the theme of 2020 is damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like I want to thrift to say, to, you know, benefit charities and to be eco-friendly and then, Oh, just kidding. It's more conglomerate money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I know the whole thing with savers and value village, like really, really upset me because I think of all the time I've spent in those stores over the years and the <sighs> posters that were all over the walls of like beautiful babies from all over the world who were struggling with hunger, but were being saved by value village. And- yeah, kids in the community who are at risk having special after school programs. It's all a web of lies. I mean, I knew in my heart that the Goodwill was shitty. Yeah. <laughs> now, well, we now I know for certain whisperings about it for, I mean, definitely within the last 10 years, I've heard multiple people like do blasts online about, you know, how they were a secretly really horrible, but not in that detail. That's- no, they're way worse. They're way worse. I'm I'm shaken up by that too. I actually thought that Goodwill was for profit because I felt like they were so predatory right. in terms of the way they sell things and market up. Or I've always had like a bad taste in my mouth for that superstore in Portland where they would make you check your bags and they had really aggressive, like really aggressive security guards at a thrift store. But they're, yeah, they're lame-ass boutique oh. ones where you're like, who's even curating this? I mean, y'all are way off the Dude, mark. Dude, that, that boutique location on Hawthorne is such a joke i went in it's a joke i went in there and they had a whole rack of like free people stuff and it was all as expensive or more expensive than buying it new as buying it in the store yeah Yeah. i was like what are are you guys thinking all right so we now know that unfortunately thrift stores are not exactly what we thought they are and it kind of it's sort of like learning that santa claus isn't real yeah. Right. Sad so times. What are you as an avid thrifter slash person who donates stuff supposed to do? Well, one, do not, I mean, I would say do not. It's really your choice. Don't donate to the Goodwill for one. Yeah. And also I would say don't donate to these uh, for-profit thrift stores. Instead, there are many other places to donate. Salvation Army being one of them, St. Vincent de Paul, uh, if you have furniture or building or craft stuff, 
the restore by Habitat for Humanity is great. Mm -hmm. And there are tons of other local places in your area that you can donate. That's Google's there for you. There are plenty of legit thrift stores. I can think of some in Portland where you are. I can think of some here in Philadelphia. So there, there are options that aren't super sketchy. So I, for one would say like, don't donate your stuff to for-profit thrift stores or to the Goodwill because the exploitation of the workers is really upsetting to me. And we don't want to support that. Unfortunately, they just they just want to make it so easy for you. So you actually have to work harder to not give your stuff to them. And yeah, there are always charities. There are shelters, women's shelters, homeless shelters. Those are all great places for like lightly used clothes and they can always use all Mm -hmm. sizes, Mm -hmm. you know? So if you're just going to give it away and you don't mind who takes it, like take it to a shelter. I feel like that. I feel like the direct outreach is probably the best. Absolutely. Um, If, if I find uh, sleeping bags and stuff, I like to just have them in my car and hand them to somebody standing at an overpass in the winter. You know, like you can do direct donation mm-hmm. in some cases, but always there are shelters and stuff to take clothes to. Totally. That kind of reminds me. So my number one celebrity crush is Paul Shear. <laughs> Whoa, into it. Okay. Uh, he, one, I really love his podcast and I think he's really funny and he feels like someone I would be friends with, but <laughs> two, and I'm not trying to break up his marriage because I think he and his wife, June are an incredible That's power cute. duo, yeah. but yeah, for sure. I, uh, he was just offhand talking about something a few months ago about how he keeps a bunch of McDonald's gift cards in like the console of his car. And when he's yeah. a homeless person, he just, just give it out. out. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, because McDonald's is everywhere. You're not going to get turned away because you look homeless. Uh, right. It's, it's a, a hot meal. meal. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh my God, Paul And Shear. a bathroom. Totally. I was like, Paul Shear, I'm in love with you. Like, this yeah. Is it. That's Seriously. a really good one for sure. <laughs> so the, anyway, the keeping the sleeping bags makes me think of that. And also just soft foods um, are really clutch because uh, I tried to hand an apple to a guy that had an anything helps sign. And he was like, mm. oh, actually, I don't have enough teeth to eat that. That's a really good call out too. Yeah. That kind of haunted me and made me be like, okay, PB and J's or what's up? Dude. I mean, that is the reality of being poor. But McDonald's, you could totally dome without teeth. Yeah. And you could treat yourself to an ice cream sundae because they have the best ice cream sundaes. Sorry. It's true. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> and apologies if you have a peanut allergy because yeah. that chocolate fudge with the peanuts. You got to is... get the peanuts. That's the price kiss, you know? Yeah. Um, anyway, so once again, these companies, they depend on your free stuff to make yeah. their money. So by cutting off that free stuff and giving it to someone else, you're making a statement there, right? And forcing them to maybe reevaluate their current donation structure. Next, I would say, listen, as a customer, this is where it gets a little bit more challenging, right? Because you want to thrift, right? <laughs> like, I get it. I'm addicted to thrifting. It's like my favorite form of shopping. Addicted. And yeah. so I would say, yeah, go into it with your blinders off. Don't go to Value Village because you think you're doing a good thing for the world. To a certain extent, you are because buying secondhand is always better than buying new. But that money's not really benefiting very many people. And I think if you go in there thinking that, it may make you second guess your decisions too. You know, give them a little bit more thought. Like, well, 
this sofa is a hundred dollars. I don't, I mean, I don't know. Like it seems like it's really marked up for what it is. Oh wait. Also, none of this money is going to benefit any charitable groups. You know, maybe I'm going to cut this one off. I'm going to go find a couch somewhere else. You know, like kind of just do that little bit of extra thinking because you know, Christine, when you go to these stores, sometimes the prices are so crazy. And yeah, and I have, I've been that person in the past is like, well, it's benefiting a good cause. So whatever. And now I'm like, right. Probably not going to do that ever again. Right. Right. And once again, there are so many thrift stores out there that actually do so much work in the community. That's a good place for you to go shopping. Also, I mean, to be honest, if we all stop giving our stuff to these like shitty, sketchy thrift stores, there won't be anything good there anyway. (laughs) So you got to go to the, you're going to have to go to the better stores to get the cool stuff. Yeah. And I think that's a great also like sort of educational moment for your family, because I guarantee you have tons of loved ones who are donating to the Goodwill all the time because it's easy, like Christine said. Maybe be like, hey, how about instead, you know, you go to this other place and maybe you can drop it off for them to make sure it happens. Yeah. I mean, I kind of don't know where to jump in on that because if people don't know about the smaller thrift stores that are actually doing good in their community Mm -hmm. because goodwill and them dominate the scene and make it Mm -hmm. so easy or like even that weird cult oh my gosh the planet the drop boxes you know like (laughs) and also people just dump stuff you know i i know portland is very unique i and i i think uh new york has it too but the free pile corners you know i'm a big fan of the free pile i have tried to institute it here in philadelphia to mixed results yeah it's like (laughs) it's such a weird (laughs) phenomenon it's like it's there and you get it or it you're just like what i'm just gonna walk by that junk on the street (laughs) oh my god i remember my friend zach moved out of this apartment that he'd lived in for like oh my god probably close to 10 years, like his entire twenties, he lived in the same apartment. It was on Morrison in Southeast. And it was the most epic free pile ever. Like it was like a mountain. And then he had a party that night and we all just sat out on the deck and watched people stop and fun things up and go through yeah. it. And it was really fun. And like, there was one of those like weird microphones in there that like makes your voice echoey and every single person picked it up and, would and tried it. Into it. Yeah. It was yeah. so cool. That's, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. I also love that about flea markets and like watching which different things people gravitate towards. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's always yeah. fascinating to me. My whole point with the free pile is that that is a phenomenon that's taught us that if you just put it there, people will take it. It's Mm -hmm. kind of amazing. I recently found Dustin a velvet blazer in a free pile here in our neighborhood. I know. It's like, it's technically women's, but it fit him really well. And I think he's going to look great. It's like burgundy. I like that. The kind of like dapper mod look. Like, yeah. 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 I think it's going to be a really good look for him. So yeah, guys, use the free pile. Uh, there are so many amazing buy nothing groups yep. on Facebook and sometimes also like on your next door app. I recently learned about an app called Olio, which allows you to kind of say, hey, I have this thing who wants to come and get oh, it. Oh, nice. It's free. You know, you it's I think it was originally created for food. So you could be like, hey, oh, yeah, I made too I much of this. Have all this shepherd pie. Yeah, or I have all this zucchini. Yeah. I feel like I see that constantly well, on Facebook. Everybody's like, I have all these zucchini. It grows wild and like you can only eat so much of it during that season. I know. So you can, you can get burned out on zucchini yeah. real fast too. We learned that this year. So 
that's another option. Uh, seriously, I, I also cannot, even though I hate Facebook as a company, Facebook Marketplace mm-hmm. is amazing. We've gotten so much stuff that we needed for our new house on Facebook Marketplace. In fact, Dustin's on his way out right now to get one of those end tables that has the cat litter box inside. <laughs> oh yeah, so, inside. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we also got a dishwasher that way and some furniture. And so can't recommend it enough. Oh, and our washer and dryer for our new house. So oh, anyway, nice. there are all these other ways that we can get this stuff back out into the community that aren't going to profit some big corporate executive. Oh, books. Like here in Portland, they do the little lending libraries. Like people will put Mm -hmm. them in their yard, like a little birdhouse kind of box to house books. So I love going around and just like, if I've got them, just drive around to a couple of those and their maps that I can find online of where they are and just drop them off in different neighborhoods. Totally. I mean, I kind of want to do one in our new house and put it right there, right there on the road so that people can stop in their car because I have so much weird books that I don't really know. What books are the Amish people reading? <laughs> I know, that's the drawback. I, I want to know. So, <laughs> in Lancaster County, there is this smorgasbord called Miller's and it's, I mean, Yes, tourists go there, but honestly, so do people who live there because it's delicious. (laughs) And it's a lot of like Pennsylvania Dutch food, but also other things too. I mean, it's a buffet and they have all these desserts and they actually even have really good cocktails. Like they last fall had this apple butter old fashioned, which like I got to, I got to figure out a way to make it this year. Right. Uh, I feel like I'm doing a commercial for this. But anyway, (laughs) we, we, we haven't been there since the pandemic began, but like we used to go there about once a month when we would be out there like thrifting or just, you know, exploring. And they have like, you know, like a lot of these places tend to have, they have like a gift shop, you know, cause you know, tourists oh, yeah, there. Sure. one of the things they have there is this whole series of Amish romance novels, but I don't think they're for Amish people. I think they're what? for English people. Okay. Outsiders. Yeah. 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 And, and we sat there one time because sometimes you should wait really long to get a table at the smorgasbord because that's how good it is. And we started- So it's like a Shoney's or like a Friendly's or something? But like way better. Way better. Ooh, like okay, imagine okay. going to like an old country buffet, but all the food is like actually homemade and like oh, fresh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like, like they're literally cooking from scratch. Anyway, when you come to visit Lancaster, we'll have to go. By then the pandemic will be over and we won't feel weird being at a smorgasbord. Well, thank you so much, Christine, for spending two hours with me here. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Christine, for being such a great guest. I promise that I'll take you to the smorgasbord as soon as we all get vaccinated at the end of the pandemic. I, I know there are many happy smorgasbord trips in our future. I just wanted to add one more thing about the thrift stores because sometimes I get the big idea after we record. Here it is. Big thrift store mega chains that rake in billions of dollars in revenue each year wouldn't exist if we weren't overconsuming so much. There are currently more than 25,000 resale consignment and nonprofit thrift stores in the United States. First Research estimates the resale industry in the U.S. to have annual revenues of approximately $17.5 billion, including, interestingly enough, revenue from antique stores, which are 13% of their statistics. Just thought you might want to hear that. 
Thread up, we talked about earlier, is predicting that it will reach 64 billion by 2028. Now, as a person who has spent a lot of time trying to help startups get funding, there's a chance that thread up $64 billion figure is only marginally based in reality, but there could also be a kernel of truth there as more and more of us buy secondhand. But once again, there wouldn't be a billions and billions and billions of dollars industry if we weren't buying so much stuff all the time and then getting rid of it. Because chances are, we're replacing all of that stuff that we donate. Why do we buy so much stuff? I mean, think of all the energy, materials, and time that are being spent to make stuff that we'll keep for a while, then donate, and then replace with something new. I mean, we have to change our ways. I know, I know, I say it all the time, but here goes again. Buy less, buy better. Buy only what you love, make it last by caring for it, and whenever possible, buy secondhand and vintage. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And tell your friends, your mom, your arch nemesis, whatever. Let's spread the word of buying less and buying better. Thank you, as always, to everyone who has been sharing our content, sending nice messages, and leaving reviews. I heard from so many of you after last week's episode discussing Patreon. Thank you so much for all of your support. I'm working out the details of Patreon, including incentives like don't give money to assholes and outfit repeater pins, maybe some stickers, and of course, bonus episodes. I got some ideas here, guys. So stay tuned. It should be coming in the next week or so. As you know, I'm moving. So just a lot going on right now. Do you have an episode suggestion, a burning question? Just want to say hi or share a story of your own? You can either email me at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at clotheshorsepodcast. Don't forget If you love the sound of my voice, then you should check out my other podcast, The Department. I co-host it with Kim. We talk about trends, taste, weird stuff from our lives, things we're obsessing about, how much we hate brunch. It's It's all covered. Our special guest, Ty McBride of Intentionally Blank, will be back for our next episode about self-care, and I'll be talking about skincare, including my own routine and how more and more consumers are limiting their skincare product consumption after years of hoarding tons of new products. In fact, the skincare industry is not dissimilar from the fast fashion industry, so you might enjoy it. As always, special thanks to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.